You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Wall Street set for another big week of earnings and economic reports. I'm Tom Busby. I'll have that story. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. We're piecing together the clues on when the ECB will cut interest rates ahead of its first meeting of the year. I'm Doug Krisner, looking at the risk tied to the meeting of the Bank of Japan. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, looking ahead to the New Hampshire primary, where Nikki Haley is trying to top former President Trump. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with a focus on earnings. More than 70 companies in the S&P 500 reporting their latest results this week. And one of the most highly anticipated reports comes on Tuesday from Netflix. For a preview, we're pleased to welcome Geetha Raghunathan, U.S. media analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, we know Netflix has really changed with the ad-supported tier that they added last year, the crackdown on password sharing. What do you expect to see on Tuesday? Yeah, so what we've really seen with these two new initiatives from Netflix, uh, as you just mentioned, both the ads as well as the password crackdown, has been that they've finally been able to now reinvigorate subscriber gains. Um, and so we saw, uh, of course, during the pandemic, we had, you know, pull a, a growth that was pulled forward. And then we had the great Netflix correction with the company kind of losing subscribers. And now they're back on track. So we actually expect them to, or they themselves said that they would uh, post something like about uh, 8.7 to 8.8 million new subscribers in the fourth quarter. That is seasonally their strongest quarter. Um, just just from kind of seeing all the, the tracking and the trending out there, we think they could easily get to about 9 million subscriber gains. So that actually, if you kind of then look at the whole year, 2023 for them, they're really back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, you know, we think they would have about 25 million new subscriber gains in 2023. You compare that to about 8 to 9 million in 2022. Uh, and, and so it really looks like these two initiatives are paying off for them and paying off in a very big way. And where are these subscribers? How many in the U.S.? How many outside the U.S.? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So obviously in the U.S., we think growth had kind of hit a wall. Uh, I mean, obviously the market was pretty mature. 
Uh, but the but the main problem in the U.S. was one is of course they did not they were not addressing kind of uh, the affordability option, which is something that has uh, you know been brought back into focus with uh, with the ad tier. And then of course you had roughly about 30 million freeloaders uh, in the U.S. market. So uh, you know again we think that growth is back in the U.S. But majority of the growth, a majority of the subscriber growth is really coming from the international market. So if you kind of look at it about 80 to 90 percent of new subscriber growth is coming from those overseas markets. And are there some countries they still haven't penetrated yet where, where there's a massive amount of potential customers? Oh, absolutely. So if you kind of look at the Asian region, I mean, this is a region which has massive, massive untapped potential. If you look at Netflix's penetration in the Asian market, and this is excluding China, it is roughly about 19 to 20%. So they are present right now in about 20% of all households with a broadband connection. In the U.S., that number is close to about 70 to 80%. So obviously there's huge upside for them in the Asian market. And then again, uh, if we kind of look at, at Europe as well, and in, in a lot of the Eastern European countries, we see that penetration is fairly low. Um, so totally, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the European region, it's at about 30, 35 percent. Again, we see a lot more uh, penetration upside in Europe as well. To that point, when I go to Netflix, I see a lot of content coming from India, produced in India. I see Australia, Europe. So uh, obviously they have they have a global outlook. Is this original content a hit, you know, something coming from India, coming from Asia, coming from Europe in the U.S. and vice versa? Yes, it has worked actually really, really well for them. So one thing is when you have kind of this global content production machine, one thing is, of course, you're able to, uh, you know, appeal to a, to a very vast uh, audience base. It does, con- you know believe it or not, local content, as long as it's made well and as long as it's authentic and has that authentic and genuine feel, it travels really well globally. Uh, they actually, Netflix actually just released something called, uh, you know, the Watch Report. Uh, and if you just kind of take a look at the top 100 titles, 30 of those top 100 titles are actually Korean and Spanish language originals. Uh, and these are titles that are watched across the world. So that, that just goes to tell you how well some of these local language uh, content titles are performing. Our thanks to Geetha Raghunathan, U.S. media analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Now it's also a busy week on the economic calendar. Bloomberg International Economics and Policy correspondent Michael McKee joins us now. And Michael, let's start first with jobs, because last week, initial jobless claims fell to the lowest level in over a year, down to 187,000. What is behind that? And as we head toward the end of this month, how is January shaping up? Well, I think what you have to do is ask the question about uh, what, it, what what essentially the direction of jobless claims is telling you, because this is still the time of year when we see uh, distortions in the jobless claims numbers because of hiring. In uh, four of the last five years, if you leave out uh, the pandemic years when jobless claims were sky high, uh, they went down in that week. And it may be residual seasonality because of the times when um, we used to hire a lot of people at holidays and then let them go in the middle of January. That happens a lot less these days. So there may be some some uh, quirks to this number. That said, uh, when you talk about what the, the, the direction of it is, it still suggests that there's a strong labor market out there. Companies are still holding on to employees. And the interesting thing is for uh, 
January jobs that you're asking about, this was the survey week for January jobs, the jobless claims numbers for this week. So they still suggest we will see reasonable strength in hiring in the month of January. Strength in jobs, and we know what that means for inflation. This coming week, we get uh, the Fed's preferred read on inflation for last month. What do you know about that? What can you tell us? The interesting thing there is that people were worried because the consumer price index went up a little bit, and that caused people to rethink what the Fed might do. But the Fed does look at the personal consumption index, and it is expected to show much more of a decline than CPI, particularly the core where there's a forecast, the, the, the economist survey by Bloomberg forecast that we could get down to uh, less than 3%. The headline is already at 2.6%. And if we get down to 2.9% or something like that on the core, that would be strong evidence to the Fed that they are moving in the right direction. They want to get to two, of course, but uh, they have always said we need to see inflation moving towards our target before we even think about cutting rates. So maybe it'll give them a chance to think about cutting rates if we see inflation fall like that. And and despite stubbornly high inflation, we saw retail sales in December surprise to the upside. Yeah, well, inflation uh, has been going away in a lot of the areas that retail sales represent. Uh, goods prices have been deflating. And so that helped, I'm sure, a lot with the holiday shopping experience, not only did people find that things might have been cheaper than they anticipated? But the companies were able to lower prices to attract customers in without a big penalty. Uh, the 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 uh, other aspect of the retail sales uh, number that was uh, good, as it has been for the last few months, is the decline in gasoline prices. Uh, gasoline prices have gone down a lot. Uh, retail sales are measured in dollars, so that puts a little bit of weight on the overall number, but it means there's more money available to go into other categories, and we saw a lot of strength in retail sales. Strength in retail sales, strength in jobs. We got a bump up in manufacturing after the uh, UAW strikes ended. All this leading to the first read, the initial read on fourth quarter GDP. And what's your outlook on that? It's changing. <laughs> the uh, The third quarter was so strong that pretty much there was unanimity that the fourth quarter was going to be relatively weak. And a lot of people, including a number of people at the Fed, thought we'd come in to the fourth quarter with growth between one and one and a half percent, perhaps. And last week's numbers suggest that there's more strength in the economy. The uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP Now number went from 1.5% to 2.4% after those retail sales numbers. So if the Atlanta Fed is reasonably accurate and they get more accurate the closer we get to the release of GDP, then the fourth quarter is going to look fairly strong and that would set us up for a stronger first quarter. And uh, that is upending some of the thinking about how the economy is going to develop in the first part of the year, and that is maybe pushing back against the idea that the Fed would be cutting soon. And if it's strong in the fourth quarter, what, looking back to 2023, what would the whole year look like? Well, we're looking at about three to three and a half percent somewhere in that area for the whole year, which would be very strong, and uh, it would be it would be good good news for uh, the overall economy, good news for the Fed, suggesting that uh, they were able to raise rates as high as they did, and not send the economy into recession, which may give them hope that 
they can keep rates high enough for long enough to bring down inflation to 2% without uh, a recession. Well, our thanks to Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head overseas and preview a key interest rate meeting from the European Central Bank. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a preview of the Bank of Japan's latest policy meeting. But before that, the first European Central Bank meeting of the year happening in the coming days. Markets will be listening closely to President Christine Lagarde for clues about when to expect interest rate cuts. But recent geopolitical uncertainty is set to further complicate decision-making. For more... Let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, inflation in the euro area ticked up to 2.9% in December, but it's a far cry from the 9.2% reading at the end of 2022. So the focus on this week's European Central Bank meeting will yet again be on when interest rate cuts might come. It comes at a time when the worlds of monetary policy and geopolitics seem more interlinked than ever. In recent days, Christine Lagarde described the prospect of another Donald Trump presidency in the US as a threat to European interests. It's a topic that came up again when the ECB president spoke to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua in Davos. They also talked about the path ahead for interest rates. Here's what she had to say. We have to stay restrictive for as long as necessary to make sure that we get to that state where we are all saying, OK, confident that it is at 2% medium term. I know some people argue that maybe we are overshooting, maybe we're taking risks. I think the risk would be worse if we went too fast and had to come back to more tightening because we would have wasted all the efforts that everybody has put in the last 15 months. But, but this would be, again, economically or also the, the trust in central banks. If you get this wrong, does it hurt the credibility? Credibility matters, let's face it. When we say we will get to 2% medium term and this will happen in the medium term as we define it, uh, if people believe in that, and they should because we will do it, uh, it, it matters. It is a component in the, in the, the, the sort of chemistry that determines inflation going forward. And again, so the timeline is quite fluid, but there seems to be uh, a majority on the governing council that expected probably by the summer, if not in the summer. You know, and you've talked to some of them, they have spoken recently, and each of them has their view, uh, which, is, which I respect completely. Yeah. We, we generally coalesce uh, yeah. towards um, the decisions that we make on the basis of data. Yeah. Some of them have their local domestic data, yeah. They have their respective inflation rates, which are different from one country to the other in the, in the euro area. Where if you look at Portugal, if you look at Germany, it's going to be different, obviously. But it's, and it's their job to say, well, it's likely that. I would say it's likely too, but I have to be reserved because we are also saying that we are data dependent and that there is still a level of uncertainty and some indicators that are not anchored at the level where we, we would like to see them. 
And don't forget that services, for instance, is still cruising at 4% inflation. Services is the most sort of labor-intensive sector of the economy, and it's one that we have to bring down yeah. towards 2%. The US election. Yeah, let me have some coffee. <laughs> <laughs> How worried are you about the US election? It's for the American people to decide what they want uh, with their politics, with their government, with their future. But obviously, we are all concerned about it because the United States is the largest economy, the largest uh, defense country in the world, and has been a, a, a beacon of democracy with all its upside and downside. But this is, this is what they should be considering. And of course, we cannot interfere with their choice. It's their choice, and that's the, the beauty of democracy. But we have to be extremely attentive and anticipate, just as we do with inflation. You know, we do scenarios. What if, what if, what if? Then what do we do? So that was the ECB President Christine Lagarde speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua in Davos. Well, as we look ahead to this week's Governing Council meeting, let's bring in our ECB reporter, Yana Randa, who's in Frankfurt. Yana, great to have you with us. Can we start with the inflation backdrop if we bring things right back down to the mechanics of all of this? The, the number for December did tick up slightly for the Eurozone, but does that really change the overall picture that's facing policymakers when they get together? Uh, it doesn't really. The pickup was really widely expected. Uh, it comes down to a large extent to energy aid and how that how that um, you know plays out in the statistics uh, in Germany. So uh, the this the pickup in December itself it doesn't change the inflation outlook one bit. What's true is that price pressures in the eurozone have come down, and and also have come down a bit faster than than most people had expected. So the latest projections um, the ECB put out in December they see headline inflation back at two percent in the third quarter of uh, next year. That is uh, in in the third quarter of 2025. Core a bit later than that. But of course, that is far, far, far ahead in the future if you're a central banker. And that's also one reason why policymakers say they cannot declare victory over inflation just yet. And of course, the UK is a good example um, that that there can be setbacks, that there can be, uh, 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 yeah, um, that things can go wrong. And of course, the risks are plentiful. Yeah, true. And, and the risk, those inflation trajectory very much in focus. We heard a little bit of what Christine Lagarde had to say about that in Davos as well. She's pointing to likely interest rate cuts by the summer. Now, we heard from a lot of ECB policymakers in the past few days in Davos as well. What else have we been hearing in terms of this when question, when interest rate cuts might come? Well, um, they seem to coalesce around a, a rate cut in the summer, uh, but they haven't committed to a specific month. month. Also, um, you know, you wouldn't really expect them to at this point in time. Um, what we heard was already a bit more outspoken than I would have expected them to be, to be perfectly honest, um, simply because the ECB always uh, insists it's not in the business of offering forward guidance. Uh, and they have an explanation, which, uh, you know, I cannot repeat because, uh, you know, it escapes me all the time, why what they're doing is not forward guidance. Um, but that said, you know, uh, June is, uh, uh, given everything we heard, a pretty good month to focus on uh, just because um, it is the start of summer, um, but also because the ECB will have updated economic projections uh, available uh, at that time time that will that will just simply show um, how inflation uh, and, and economic growth will develop. 
Yeah, I think the, the June and July meeting is very much in focus because, of course, there's that big break between the meeting at the end of July and the next one in mid-September. So that's been a part of the thought process and people have been thinking about what who, what defines the exact dates of summer as well, which is sort of key to this conversation too. Um, there does seem to be that sort of discrepancy between some of the speakers uh, that we've heard from in the past few days. Joachim Nagel talking about him being open to rate cuts this summer, but Robert Holtzman saying that they may not even be coming this year at all. When we think about the the conversations and the perhaps arguments that happen within that governing council room as well, what sort of split in opinions are there at the moment among policymakers? Yeah, I mean, the, for the most part, um, people seem to say summer is is a good moment uh, when when we should really have that discussion and when we should really have that debate. Because don't forget that uh, everybody who spoke um, so far or, or in the past couple of days uh, essentially said it's too soon to have that discussion now. Um, but but there were a few outliers. You're right. Uh, one that stood out was Robert Holtzman from Austria who basically said, don't count on rate cuts at all this year uh, because we don't know what wages will be doing. We don't know uh, what geopolitics will be doing. So he he's concerned about energy prices, about uh, supply chain disruptions once again uh, because of conflicts in the Middle East and, and uh, you know, attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Uh, and of course, that you know, those concerns... Uh, uh, happen or, 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 or uh, you know you find them uh, with with every policymaker of course but but the way you weigh them um, um, that differs and Jana it's that sort of detail that we love to get from you ahead of these sorts of events our ECB reporter Jana Randau thank you very much I'm Stephen Carroll in London you can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street Tom Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Asia and preview another policy meeting, this one from the Bank of Japan. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Now, sometime in the next few months, Japan's central bank is expected to end the world's last negative interest rate. For markets, the question is whether the BOJ might hint at the timing of that on Tuesday when officials wrap up a two-day policy meeting. Bloomberg's Doug Krisner, co-host of Daybreak Asia takes a closer look. Tom, the BOJ has kept short-term interest rates anchored near zero for the past three decades. But now, after 30-plus years of humdrum predictability, things may be about to change. The Japanese bond market, the world's third largest, is sensing a shift in policy. We've got the benchmark Nikkei 225 stock index trading right around a 34-year high. And brokerages across Tokyo are staffing up, often seeking out older traders who remember when Japan had positive interest rates. The question, have markets become overly optimistic about imminent tightening? We're joined now by Bloomberg's Paul Jackson, our economy editor in Tokyo. Paul, thanks for being with us. So let me ask you that question. Are markets too optimistic about uh, an immediate turn from the BOJ? 
Uh, well, I think markets are right to be presuming that uh, a rate hike is in the pipeline early this uh, year. It's the timing that's the critical question. And I think at next week's uh, meeting, uh, it's going to be uh, too early to go yet. We've had a bad start to the year outside the markets. Uh, we had this uh, major earthquake in northwestern Japan. Over 200 people are dead and still thousands in evacuation centers, uh, followed by the uh, plane disaster at uh, uh, Haneda Airport. Uh, so I think under these circumstances, uh, uh, BOJ would uh, not be wanting to uh, raise interest rates in a way that's going to affect uh, a wide, much wider range of people than uh, kind of tweaks to its uh, yield curve control or something that affects uh, fewer people. Uh, so really, I think from this meeting, what we're looking for is signals from Governor Ueda about when he's going to pull the trigger. Mm. So we know the Japanese economy has been dealing with inflation for about a year and a half that's been above the BOJ's 2% target. I'm wondering whether we need to distinguish between the effects of cost push inflation versus demand pull. Is, is that an important distinction for the BOJ? I think that's a very important distinction for the BOJ, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. That is what they're waiting for. Uh, they're waiting for the cost push elements of inflation to uh, cool down, and they want to see evidence that there is uh, demand pull inflation, something that will make this inflation last. Remember, Japan's been looking for good inflation for uh, decades now, and what it's uh, uh, keying in on is a a positive growth cycle that sees wages helping to drive prices. Because if wages are going up as well as prices, then consumption can also increase. If wages aren't going up and you've got inflation, then you've got bad inflation and you've got a problem for the economy. Well, I'm glad you touched on wages there because I think the BOJ would be a little encouraged by what appears to be a stronger annual wage negotiation result. Do you think that's a, a, a market positive if you're you're making the bet that the pivot is sometime maybe if it's not this month it's in the month of April and it's due largely because we're seeing movement in in terms of wage increases yeah I think we've got some good anecdotal evidence of wage increases we've got Eon with a 7% gain for part-timers Nomura offering 16% for younger employees uh, Tokyo Electron a uh, 40% for uh, starters at the company these are big figures but these are also big companies what the BOJ wants to see is there a wider range of companies uh, pushing up uh, wages too especially uh, smaller companies now there's an annual spring uh, negotiation between companies and unions and uh, this is known as the Shunto and the result is due on March the 15th the initial result of these annual wage negotiations and uh, some former BOJ executives are expecting the figure to be as high as 4% this year compared with 3.58% last year and if we have that kind of figure then I think the BOJ is going to be in a position uh, to move 
Uh, so then the question is, <laughs> would they move in March or in uh, April? I think the result comes out just a couple of days before the March meeting. So that's maybe a little bit tight on the time. I think the Bank of Japan will want to uh, assess the information and any updates uh, showing uh, gains for smaller companies and make the decision in April, which is the start of a new financial year. They'll also have new price forecasts. The timing looks good for them. So I'm wondering what the first step would be, other than preparing the market rhetorically and giving ample warning of a, of a move. I'm wondering whether or not it's yield curve control again and a modest adjustment and leaving the negative rate intact for a while longer, or maybe as early as April, we're de dealing with the removal of the negative rate. Which do you think it is? Well, I think... Um this is uh, another another key question. Um, I, th I think there's uh, a lot of thought that they're trying to do everything at the same time. Um, I think for this meeting in January, what we're looking for is kind of verbal signaling from the governor that we're getting closer to the target. Not a little bit closer, but closer to the target. I think that would be a key steer. Uh, when we get to uh, April, uh, would they get rid of all these uh, uh, yield curve control um, uh, uh, this real curve control formulation then. Uh, there's there's a good chance of that, but I think the main focus really is on uh, the negative rate. And I think that's likely to go zero in April. And there is an argument that the BOJ might want to wait to see those wage increases feed in to an uptick into inflation uh, and then make the decision in July. But don't forget, we've got the Fed, the ECB, uh, you know, considering possible rate cuts uh, I think the effect on markets would be larger if they wait until then. So again, it's another sign that April maybe is the month. Well, I'm glad you brought up that point because one of the things I think markets have been struggling with globally right now is perhaps the idea that maybe they were a little too uh, optimistic that the Fed was going to be aggressive in cutting rates. So we've had the market kind of dialing back a bit from that notion. And as a result, it's engendered a little bit of strength here for the dollar. And the flip side of that has created a tremendous weakness in, in the Japanese yen. How do you think that yen weakness will impact the BOJ's thinking? Uh, well, I think it needs to get a little bit weaker yet. Uh, if you remember, uh, in the latter part of last year, uh, we were getting uh, very close to uh, levels uh, over 150 to uh, close to 152. And uh, I, I think that's the kind of level we need to get to again uh, before the BOJ starts uh, worrying about uh, about the yen levels. So I think at the moment that isn't going to be a key consideration. But if it continues in that direction, uh, sure, that will become part of the calculus. So you're in Tokyo. I'm curious, we had the Tokyo CPI reading uh, a little while back. What is life like in Tokyo right now as consumers kind of move through the economy? Are they concerned about inflation? Is it registering high in, in people's minds? Yes, it certainly is. I mean, it's a novel concept for many people who've never seen uh, price uh, rises like this uh, uh, before. Um, there's a lot of c confusion uh, about it, bewilderment, uh, surprise. And so I think in terms of the expectations of, hey, I want my job, I don't want to be at risk in a job, so I don't mind having not much of a pay raise to 
no, no, no. I I want my job and I want a decent pay raise this year. We'll have to see what happens this week when the BOJ conducts its meeting. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Paul Jackson, Bloomberg Economy Editor in Tokyo, helping us preview the BOJ meeting. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 9 a.m. in Hong Kong, 8 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Doug. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the Iowa caucuses are over now. It's on to New Hampshire for the Republican presidential hopefuls. Who's in the lead? Will the Granite State's independent voters change the trajectory of the race? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. The New Hampshire GOP primary, the first in the nation, is this Tuesday, and it could be a make-or-break contest for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Balance of Power co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Tom. Iowa brought us the first real contest in the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination and a blowout victory for former President Donald Trump. But that was a caucus. New Hampshire brings us the first in the nation primary. And it also maybe could bring former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley's last real chance to eat into the frontrunner's domination. Bloomberg senior national politics reporter Nancy Cook will be making the trip up to Manchester with me to cover it. And she's joining me now. So, Nancy, first, Nikki Haley is framing this as essentially a two-person race between her and Trump. There's a lot of buzz out there about her ability to potentially upset Trump in the state of New Hampshire. But the polling we have seen over this past week suggests she is still lagging behind him by a not insignificant margin. So how hard is this really going to be for her to pull off? It's going to be hard to pull off, um, honestly. I mean, the polling is a little bit all over the place. So the margin between them is anywhere from seven percentage points to like 16 percentage points, depending on which recent poll you look at. But the takeaway is she's still behind in all of these polls, and Trump is leading her. Um, the New Hampshire electorate does favor her because, uh, you know, it's moderates, it's centrist Republicans, it's independents and Democrats who can switch party affiliation to vote. They would have already had to have done that in the primary. And that's a make that's a group that she has really targeted with her candidacy. But similar to Iowa, Trump's grip on GOP, the Republicans in New Hampshire, is still really, really strong. And Haley just hasn't sort of been able to chip into that. So what she's doing is she's bringing new voters into the Republican primary, like the independents and the Democrats. But she's having a hard time sort of making inroads into his base of support. Mm. And that's what she will need to do to actually win. If she doesn't win in New Hampshire, could Trump essentially have the nomination in the bag? 
by Wednesday morning? Well, I mean, that's really what they're hoping. You know, they are hoping to have, you know, they had a blowout victory in Iowa. They're hoping to have a blowout victory in New Hampshire. Polling shows that he is completely dominant in South Carolina, her home state where she was governor. And so they just want to sort of kick off these first four contests, including Nevada, and just show that they're totally dominant and basically have the nomination wrapped up by mid-March after Super Tuesday. And that would mean sort of him earning enough delegates along the way from all these various contests to win it. Ron DeSantis technically is still in the race as well after he came in number two in Iowa. But it seems like he's kind of writing off New Hampshire since he's pulling so low. They're diverting resources to South Carolina. Are we even really going to be talking about him in the Granite State? Well, so he is having events. One of the super PACs supporting his candidacy called Never Back Down is having events in New Hampshire. I think they're having some today. They're having some over the weekend. But New Hampshire is not really Ron DeSantis' scene, and it hasn't been for months. You know, he's never really advertised there. He doesn't have a big contingent there. Um, you know, after he won the Iowa, or after he came in third or second, excuse me, in the <laughs> Iowa caucuses, he went directly to South Carolina. You know, it's just not an electorate that really... Um, goes with his ideology. You have to remember in Florida, he signed a six-week abortion ban, and that's not something that New Hampshire voters, uh, the majority of them, like or are interested in. And so policy-wise, he doesn't really match up there. And one of the most recent polls I saw had him polling at like 6%, um, whereas Trump is over 50. So you can just tell. I mean, he just doesn't have a lot of juice there. Well, I certainly am looking forward to hopefully not having to break out my heated gloves like I did in Iowa. Nancy Cook, Bloomberg Senior National Politics Reporter, thank you so much. And Tom, keep your eye on the Granite State. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Balance of Power co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Balance of Power weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.